On today's Louisiana Considered, as carnival season approaches, the Mobile Carnival Museum celebrates a Mardi Gras first. Also, New Orleans actor, producer, and director Louis Q. Barroso died Monday. We'll have a remembrance from Sid Arroyo. Yesterday, we brought you a conversation on so-called book bans, where we heard from advocates on both sides of the argument to censor certain materials in public libraries, namely those that reference sexuality and LGBTQ identities. Today, we wanted to speak with someone who can offer more historical context. After all, book bans aren't new in Louisiana. Carrie Westenberg is New Orleans-based writer and editor who penned the article in 64 Parishes magazine called Warning, This Article Could Be Banned, detailing historical book bans in the state. She joined WRKF's Adam Voss for more. So tell me briefly about some of the more notable historical instances of book bans and censorship in public libraries here in Louisiana. The first that I read about was all the way back in 1937, when a book called Rise of American Civilization was actually confiscated by the New Orleans police. And there isn't a lot of context around that, but I believe it had to do with the frame, with a sort of reframing of the founding fathers as having written the Constitution as a way to um, maintain their economic advantage. But that same year, in 1937, there were also two other books that were banned. One is called Green Margins, and the other one was is called uh, Stubborn Roots. They told stories about, sort of realistic stories about life in the Louisiana Delta and on a, and on a sugar plantation. So not a ton of context there. But then we jumped to 1963, and Another Country by James Baldwin uh, was removed from the shelves of the New Orleans library. The Orleans district attorney had declared the book obscene and um, the New Orleans police again were involved because a bookstore in New Orleans had failed to remove it from its shelves and they stormed the bookstore and took all of the copies, the remaining copies of that book. I opened the piece with an interesting event that occurred in 1967. A single woman walked into the library of Andrew Jackson High School Library. She met with the librarian. She gave the librarian a list of books that she thought should be removed from the shelves. So she and the librarian started going to town. They tore up Ulysses, um, about a dozen books. And what is interesting about that is that libraries tend to keep books on the shelves. That's what they want to do. This librarian believed that she was facing a woman named Debbie who worked for the school board. So when this woman, Debbie Coleman, walked into the library, as a private citizen and announced her name as Debbie, the librarian sort of paid attention because she had this misunderstanding and she thought it was this woman from the school from the school board. So they destroyed several books. The woman who initiated it, her name was Debbie Coleman, said that she wanted to come back. There were more books on her list. One of them was 
dictionaries. She wanted to attack dictionaries because so many of them had just really objectionable words in them. So um, she did not succeed in that. What are some examples of books that people today would generally consider integral context in literature and in the study of history for students, which in the past have been banned in libraries in Louisiana? Well, um, a couple of major titles comes to mind for me. One is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That is a recurring book that is um, on book ban lists. And To Kill a Mockingbird has also been attacked many times. Shiloh, which was a Newbery winner, has been challenged. Of Mice and Men. You know, a lot of really great works of literature that were written in a certain time and tend then to not be welcome at a later time. What are some of the common themes that we've heard when it comes to objections to books like the ones that you mentioned? Book challenges, they can come from the right and they can come from the left. Sometimes there's discomfort with language that is used, ways to to depict Black people. And sometimes it's about sort of trying to protect children from learning about ways of being, uh, a different worldview that the parents might not share. And so they attack the books that might represent them. Tell me about some of the rhetoric and claims that tend to come up again and again when people object to what youth have access to in school libraries and public libraries. What do our examples from history share in common as far as the arguments that people use today? Yeah, uh, I would say the main one is obscenity. You know, that was the reason that Another Country by James Baldwin was removed from the libraries temporarily. It did it did get reinstated in 1963. It's the same words that are being used today to attack um, books that might be discussing gender and sexuality. I, I feel like, you know, obscenity is almost a code word, or it's an it's a word that people can sort of easily get behind and feel outraged about. But it, in a sense, what's happening is that people are discomforted by new ways of thinking, uh, new social mores. And so they are saying, I don't want my child to be introduced to this idea. And so I want it removed from, from the library so that they can't have access to it. I, I don't believe that people who are interested in banning books or making moves to ban books are necessarily villains. I think they're just good people with a certain worldview um, that they want to protect. And they don't really understand that, like books are a convenient way to express their dis discomfort. It's a target, it's tangible, but they're just human beings trying to do the best thing that they can do for their kids. When do book bans and pushes for censorship usually happen? Under what kind of historical context? What culturally is usually going on that tends to coincide with an excitement of public awareness over what students are reading? It seems to me that there is sort of an arc of these movements 
And for instance, the the incident in 1974, when um, the woman marched into the her school, her previous school's library to remove some books. That was the 70s. That had followed the 60s, where there was all this social upheaval in the 60s, and it was really sort of a, a rebellion and a it, it was a it was fringe in the 60s. It be, it came home. It settled into society by the 70s, and so that is when the book banning began because that's when it felt threatening to the people who were discomforted by premarital sex, men with long hair, and all the stuff that the 60s brought. I draw a parallel to today then because we have growing awareness and acceptance of a range of of, uh, sexual identities. I think that the most recent rash of of book challenges has come out of that. Coming from a historical context, what you've seen in history with book bans and how they're resolved, is there a way for people to find common ground? Does one side need to raise the flag or will we continue to see battles over books for years to come? I wish I had an answer to that. But I would say that the current movements to ban books, they seem uh, slightly more organized. In in a way, I wonder if uh, social media and our connectedness in society is helping with that. You know, in 2018, Lafayette Parish faced backlash when they wanted to have, um, I think it's called Drag Queen Storytime. And that seemed to have started this movement in Louisiana, sort of came home to roost in Lafayette when a couple of books were were challenged. Two books have been officially challenged when I talked to the director in October. One was This Book is Gay, and the other one is The V Word. They're both about sexuality and gender. Now there is Rapides Parish is looking at banning books. St. Tammany Parish has removed about 70 books. They're under review as we speak. Many of them are LGBTQ themed. So I am unfortunately going to guess, and it is solely a guess, that there's going to be more books challenged and over a broader area than currently is happening. And that had happened in the past And the general polarization of society right now means that there will be more. Carrie Westenberg, author of the article in 64 Parishes magazine called Warning, this article could be banned. It's available now online at 64 Parishes magazine and will be published in the paper version of that magazine later this spring. Carrie Westenberg, thank you for being here today on the show. Yeah, a pleasure. WRKF host Adam Boss with author Carrie Westenberg. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Langle. It's officially carnival season, and Mardi Gras is largely associated with Louisiana and, of course, New Orleans. It's Mobile, Alabama, though, that actually claims to be the birthplace of this holiday. That's right. In 1703, Mardi Gras was observed for the first time in the New World by French pioneers at 27 Mile Bluff, or the first settlement of Mobile. While there were some carnival celebrations in the New Orleans area in 1699, New Orleans had yet to be established as a city, which 
gives Mobile the title of being the first known American city to host the event. Here to tell us a little bit more about Mobile's Mardi Gras history is Cart Blackwell, curator at the Mobile Carnival Museum. What did the celebration look like at that time? In 1830, heading into 1831, New Year's Eve, a group of Mobilians, four men, because um, it started out as a guy's game, we're out on the water. And when four mobile men are out on the water then and now, there's a liquid. And his name was Jack Daniels. <laughs> they had a good time. And one of those four men, a gentleman named Michael Kraft, when he got back in off the water, he took a little nap in the door to a hardware store. We even know the name of the hardware store, Partridge Hardware. And when he woke up from his little rest he was being taunted by some some teenagers and he didn't miss a beat he grabbed a cowbell and a rake and proclaimed himself the chief of the cowbell and Draken society and when he woke up the next morning a little worse for the wear he got his buddies together and over the course of a year that group the cowbell and Draken society in the 1830s developed the template for american carnival Let's talk about some of the earlier crews and some of the traditions that have developed uh, through the years that um, that you can find at the museum. Mobile's carnival traditions are rich and varied, and we tell the story of over 80 area mystic societies, what New Orleanians call crews, and they really represent so much of our community. It's estimated that let that roughly 50% of our population, and that's a conservative number there, that estimate, are members of the Mystic Society. And we tell the stories of each of these and how they represent mysticism, how they tie into Mobile, how they fit into the art, the fun, the industry, and most importantly in Mobile, the family nature of Carnival. So we represent all of our area's mystic society groups. We have major works of art, such as the Strikers Goat. And the Strikers are the oldest active mystic society in the nation. They date from 1842. And there's this wonderful goat statue they commissioned from the eight, in the 1870s. And it's the second largest piece of postbellum folk art in the nation. We do a series of change in thematic exhibits. We've looked at carnival and spirits, carnival and couture, carnival and cuisine. We currently have a show on Joe Kane, who's the most famous figure um, in Mobile Carnival history. He was among those individuals who brought carnival back after the Civil War. Uh, we're going to have after Mardi Gras a show on carnival and silver. We'll have 700 pieces of silver going back to the 18th century to this very calendar year. Then an exhibit on invitations and a special show on the youthful child experience of carnival. And that'll be very interactive. We have another series that's looking at all of our area mystic societies. And it's threefold in nature. We celebrate the organization for themselves, give them a pat on the back maybe reintroduce them to Mobilians, and most importantly, to for our visitors from farther afield, to give them a taste through one organization, what mysticism, what crews are like here in Mobile. We're speaking now with Cart Blackwell, curator at the Mobile Carnival Museum. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, because at the, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, of course, photography comes along. And Carnival has always been fascination for a lot of photographers. So you have a pretty nice collection, I understand, there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We have a wonderful collection of photographs, and they fall into several categories. The, the street or parade side of Carnival, we have a wonderful collection of rotating photographs of that. And that's the most experiential and accessible part 
uh, we also have a grouping of photographs of, of carnival balls. So when you get all gussied up and dressed up and with family and friends and another section on the royal or court side, um, the regal side of carnival with our changing exhibit series, we add aspects of like carnival and dining or carnival and fashion. So our collections are constantly being rehung and we also rely on private collections a good deal just so you can get a sneak peek of special things that still remain in the hands of families that are gracious enough to loan it to us. And I'm sure you have plenty of artifacts other than just, of course, beads. There must be things that have come to you over the the years. We are very well known for our textiles. And the textiles fall into several categories. The best known is Mobile Supreme Carnival Art Form, the train. Not Thomas on the track, but the trains that follow a monarch. And we have the world's largest collection of trains. And every single one is locally designed and made. And that's something we're very proud of in our textile division. Of course, we've got many costumes, things that are made locally and designed locally, but also things that are from international designers such as Chanel, Worth, etc. So we try to tell stories with our various um, artifacts. And like I said, it's the textiles are a major component. We have a large collection of painting. You mentioned the photography. We have float pieces, an actual float that you can hop up on. So we try to be very experiential. If you can't engage with it, we want you to see it in a video or look at the original um, photograph of the original garment. So we try to engage people on many levels. You know, one of the things... I think that's wonderful about Carnival is every city puts its own unique take on it. What uh, What's Mobile's unique take on Carnival? I think Mobile's unique take on Carnival is that it is very much a family affair. You, you see all generations lining um, the barricades, riding up our parade routes. And that's the most special component of it, to see parents with children, grandparents, and we're very gracious to our visitors, but it's a, it's a local affair. And I think that that's something that people visiting uh, our city from other places during Carnival, that that is the most endearing component, that it is anchored in our community, which makes it uh, very, very, very special, very safe, very engaging, and what keeps people here. And if they don't live here in Mobile anymore, it's going to draw them back. If the Mobilian has moved away, they might not come back for Christmas and New Year's or Fourth of July, but they'll come back for Mardi Gras. Card Blackwell, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Carl, it's been fantastic being with y'all. That was Cart Blackwell, curator at the Mobile Carnival Museum. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. Theater and puppet theater communities around the world are mourning the loss of a giant in his time. Many of us woke up earlier this week to the news that Louis Cubaroso, a prolific actor, producer, and director, had died overnight. Barroso was one of the co-creators of the legendary Children's Corner Theater at La Petite Theater during the 70s and served as its artistic director. His plays inspired a generation of New Orleans actors and theater professionals, while also bringing kids and their families to the theater. Barroso also spent time in Atlanta at the Center for Puppetry Arts, where he won international recognition for his productions of Dr. Doolittle and Hansel and Gretel. You can find the theater resume for Barroso at stageclick.com and his film bio at imdb.com. Joining us now is Sid Arroyo, who was just starting to find his way on stage when he met Lewis. Uh, well, he started out 
a gallery circle doing a play that I auditioned for, and that's how I met Louis. I saw something about auditions at Gallery Circle Theater for a production of Sleeping Beauty. And and Louis was just getting into the children's theater directing business in New Orleans. It's a, I've heard it. I, I believe it was the first play he directed doing children's theater in New Orleans. And, uh, and we had a ball. And uh, he became the place to be wherever Louis was uh, when he made the move to Le Petit Theater. He had a, this creative core of people that he counted on, almost like a mini repertory company. Talented people wanted to work with him. Uh, gifted people wanted to work with him. And because he was a visionary, he was doing things nobody else was doing in New Orleans. Uh, not only at the time, but ever since. Absolutely. The Facebook post was beautiful because it it told us the news, but it also said he's going to live for quite a while because his photos are around forever. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, there's more than just photos there. There's files, there's scripts, there's uh, audio tapes, there's uh, programs from the productions, listing the cast members. Uh, there were some... you know worksheets where he was like figuring things out on paper about how to mount the show and what he wanted to express in it. And it's a, it's a treasure trove. I mean, he had bought, he basically called me up several years ago and, and, and asked me if I, I could be entrusted with basically his legacy. I was stunned that he asked and I was thrilled to say yes. And so I organized it and, uh, with Louis' guidance and direction, I organized it and I crafted it and I put it in the different groups and sections uh, as best I could. And and then uh, together I discussed with him before approaching HNOC, the Historic New Orleans Collection. I said, uh, you know, after reviewing this, organizing it, and looking at the, the, the sheer, you know, weight and context of it, I thought that that would be a the most fitting place to to have these records stored and maintained and protected. And he agreed. And the historic New Orleans collection sent some appraisers and they looked through and reviewed all, all of uh, his work. And they said that they thought they'd be proud to hold, to uh, hold on to his memory for, for historical purposes. Sid, it is always great to talk to you. And, uh, mm-hmm. Even under these circumstances, it's good to hear your voice. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Sid Arroyo is a former frontman for Vince Vance and the Valiants and a political consultant. He's one of many New Orleans performers who were active during the city's acclaimed Golden Age of Children's Theater, much of which was imagined, created, and staged by Louis Q. Barroso. Barroso died earlier this week at the age of 78. A thorough listing of his accomplishments is available in the NOLA.com obituary. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. That's the show today. Thanks to our guests, Carrie Westenberg, Cart Blackwell, and Sidney Arroyo. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. 
You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and at 7.30 in the evening. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.